I jokingly described this moment in history as a time when every housewife was dreaming of becoming a punk. Not only was our audience receptive to the idea of a punk Cinderella story, but also the myth of the UFO was literally in the air because Spielberg's early films had just come out. It might be immodest of me to say this, but I believe in most cases that a professional filmmaker knows what he or she is doing and can predict the results from the onset. What I wanted to make was a metaphorical parable that would encompass the main mass culture myths of the early 1980s. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, and aliens. All these were ideas, indeed, in the air. Slava Zuckerman on his 1982 film, Liquid Sky. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film in film history. Today is the third Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about a film recommended by a listener. For those new to the podcast, once a month, a listener takes over the show and makes me watch a movie that they have a fondness for. And at the end of the show, I will either celebrate the listener or curse their name for all eternity. Today's film was suggested by a man named Jeff Strubba. Jeff, I hope I pronounced your last name right. It's S-T-R-B-A. He asked me to watch a 1982 film called Liquid Sky. I had never heard of it, but I found a really good version of it on YouTube, so I thought, hey, let's give it a try. Now, when I started this podcast, I thought it would be a grand idea to be forced to watch a film I wouldn't normally watch. I didn't expect Liquid Sky. I don't know why I'd never heard of this film before. I suppose it was because back in 82... I was thinking more about beer and rock and roll than about films, especially ones about the New York, New Wave, Manhattan nightclub, drug culture scene that is the focus of this film. When I first watched it, I must admit I was a bit distracted, so when it ended, I was sort of like, huh? So I took it upon myself to watch it again, and I think I understood it a little more, but I was still saying to myself, huh? I really didn't know what to think. I sort of wanted to dismiss it as just being weird for weird's sake, but I don't think that would have been fair. And you know, one thing about me is, I'm not the type of person who says, I didn't understand it, so it must suck. I have this tendency to try to understand why other people like it. So after the first two viewings, the film not really appealing to me, I looked at what other people thought of the film, and there are people that actually really love it. They consider it a cult classic. I read comments on YouTube that said things like, Awesome! I love this movie! It's one of my all-time favorites! Somebody else wrote, I saw this in the theater when it came out. Glad to get a chance to see it again after all these years. I think I like it even more now. There's really nothing like it. Thanks for sharing it here. And one more person said, Been searching for this movie for years. 
Seen it way back in the 90s, and let's just say it left an impression on me. Can't thank you enough for the upload. So when I read that a bunch of people really like something that I'm having a problem appreciating, I try to figure out why. I want to find out what I'm missing. It's like a lot of Pablo Picasso's work. I'm like, hey, that's supposed to be a man playing a guitar? Really? Anyway, Liquid Sky. It debuted at the Montreal Film Festival in 82 and was well-received there and at other film festivals. So I assume it's just me. Like I said, the YouTube upload I watched was of very high quality. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But I want to warn you before you watch, this film is filled with drug use, sex and rape, although surprisingly little nudity, and very foul language. Now, personally, I don't have a problem with adult language, but just so you know, this movie uses terms like the C word for the vagina many times. So for more sensitive ears, well, you're warned. What's that supposed to do? Make me fall apart and spread my legs? Takes more than two coilers to do that, baby. Why don't you go home to your mama? Anyway, how about the film? It takes place in the new wave drug culture world of the 80s, in which it seems young people try to dress as colorfully and outrageous as they can. This is the world of heroin and fashion. Our main character is a bisexual, cocaine-addicted woman named Margaret. She has a drug-dealing friend, Adrian, whom she shares an apartment with. Another friend, Jimmy, is also a drug addict and wants to buy drugs but doesn't have the money to pay for them. I found any money yet? No, but I'm going to get some. I can pay you tomorrow. No money, no stuff, babe. I'll have it tomorrow. Talk to me tomorrow. Was this how New York was in the 80s? I don't know. An alien spaceship lands on the roof of Margaret and Adrian's apartment building. The flying saucer is about the size of a dinner plate, so these are tiny little aliens. Now these aliens, well, you never see them, but apparently they want drugs and realize that the endorphins created in the brain from those who have had sex with Margaret are the best drugs of all. So every time she has sex, which is usually non-consensual in this case, results in her sexual partner dying or disappearing, or I'm guessing both. There is also a subplot in which a scientist and Jimmy's mother, who seems to want to have sex with the scientist, are watching from across the street with a telescope. I think that they're more for exposition. So if the audience doesn't quite know what's going on, we'll hear the scientist explain it to Jimmy's mother. The alien craft is about the size of a dinner plate. Uh, whoever told you that uh, aliens need as much space as people? Uh. Well, that's really quite a world that you show me. German scientists are as tall as the Empire State Building. And aliens are as big as jumbo shrimp. The film was directed by Slava Zuckerman, who also wrote the original story. The uh, final screenplay was written by him, Anna V. Karova, who is Zuckerman's wife, and Anne Carlyle. Anne would go on to play the dual lead roles of Margaret and Jimmy. We'll talk more about that later. 
Zuckerman said in an interview that this was a Cinderella story in which a young girl finds her prince charming in the form of aliens. In another interview on Canadian radio in 2017 with Greg Gilbert, he said he wanted to make an anti-fairy tale. Peter Rolberg, professor of Slavic languages, film studies, and international affairs at George Washington University, said that Zuckerman is one of the most original film artists of our time, and at the same time, he is undeservingly little known. Slava Zuckerman was born in the Soviet Union on March 9, 1940. At a young age, he was interested in film, but had little opportunity. So in the 1960s, he studied at the Moscow Institute of Civil Engineering. It was when he was 21 years old, he was able to make his first short film called I Believe in Spring. It won first prize at the All-Union Festival of Amateur Films in Moscow and went on to win a prize at the Montreal Film Festival. In the 70s, he immigrated to Israel and worked for Israeli television. There, he filmed a documentary called Once Upon a Time There Were Russians in Jerusalem. The film won the Best Documentary and Best Director Award at the World Television Film Festival in Hollywood. From Israel, he traveled with his wife to New York, figuring it was the best place to make independent films. He assumed that, coming from Russia, he would have little chance of success in Hollywood. Once in New York, he decided to take three or four years to learn about New York culture before he began his work in films. His original plan was to make a science fiction film called Sweet 16 about a girl who loses her body in an accident with only her head surviving. Her scientist father builds her a new mechanical body, one of a 16-year-old, so she spends the rest of her life with the body of a teenager. It was to star Paula E. Shepard, who he saw in the film Alice Sweet Alice from 1976. This film didn't happen because of the lack of financing. It was just too expensive. So Zuckerman decided to do something with a lower budget. At the time, his wife, Nina V. Karova, who had come from Russia with him, was working on her own script about a woman who could not get an orgasm. The two began collaborating, but had problems with the language barrier. So a friend of theirs, Anne Carlyle, began to help. Anne was really into the new wave scene in New York. and, like I said, would go on to play the dual roles of Margaret and Jimmy. The character of Margaret being based on her. That was one of Zuckerman's main ideas, to take people he really knew and, and basically have them play themselves on film. He also had another friend, Bob Brady. Bob was a teacher of acting at the School of Visual Arts. Anne Carlyle had been one of his students. He was helping with Sweet 16 and then became the casting director for Liquid Sky. He also plays the part of Owen, the acting professor, in the film. Zuckerman said, The idea from the very beginning was that a lot of low-budget films are bad because people write scripts not thinking about how they can create it, and they have this naive belief that for a half million dollars, they can make the same film that Hollywood makes for 15 million. You cannot compete. So the power of a low-budget script is writing films for actors you really know. A stylistic, artistic point of view. I very much like the idea of it. And the fantastic, non-realistic film, all the characters will be real people. 
the script will be built on real characters, and the people on which the script is built will play themselves. So that was part of the general idea. We wrote for them using their own expressions, their own lives. And he was a huge fan of Andy Warhol. Not only his paintings, but his films as well. His idea, however, was to use Andy Warhol's paintings as an inspiration of how the film would look and feel. And that included a lot of neon. Which, he said, was very difficult to capture on film. But now you know what? I've been talking for way too long and need a break, so it's time for Nancy. Let's hear what her thoughts are going to be when it comes to Liquid Sky. Hello, folks. First, I need to thank Jeff for setting me straight about the camera technique in last episode's film, Animal Crackers. I should have remembered that early cameras were dang loud and that some kind of sound dampening system would have to have been used, making them even more unwieldy than they already were and putting the kibosh on any kind of tracking shots. Good thing there are two of us poking at each of these movies. Now, for today's film, I'm going to leave it entirely up to Jeff. While Liquid Sky is an interesting artifact of early 80s indie film, it's just not something I would personally recommend. There are probably video reviews on YouTube that will suffice for anybody interested in taking a Cliff Notes look at it, and that's the end of my commentary on Liquid Sky. Now, how about a little bit about 80s indie sci-fi films I actually like? Not only is my shortlist 80s-centric, these films were all released about the same time as Liquid Sky, 83 or 84. The 80s was a power decade for indie, low-budget, and experimental sci-fi films, probably as a result of the staggering success of Star Wars in 77, followed by the equally staggering and unlikely success of The Empire Strikes Back in 1980. Any producer quick off the mark was hoping to cash in on some of that sweet sci-fi magic. And by magic, I mean box office revenue. When you don't have a big studio backing you with their big studio dollars, you scale down the special effects and concentrate on humor, character development, or both. I'm a giant nerd who graduated from high school in the early 80s and didn't graduate college until the late 80s, so I was pretty much the target audience for 80s genre films. Seattle, and especially Seattle's University District, was lousy with small art house cinemas back then. So there were ample opportunities to see movies that might not have made it to the average theater in an average town. I saw every one of the films on the following list on the big screen. Wow. We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? How can I ask you that? How about mobile thermal nuclear war? Fine. Now, if you want to see a good, family-friendly, soft sci-fi film, also released in 83, I recommend War Games. It's not really an indie, but genre films weren't as mainstream as they are in today's Marvel Cinematic Universe world. It features a very young rising star Matthew Broderick as a clever high school kid who accidentally hacks into a defense department wargaming system and almost sets off World War III. 
It's basically a nerd thriller with a solid supporting cast that made good use of rapidly expanding computer tech as a plot point. Shall we play? The following year, 1984, is where the rest of my list resides. I was in college at the University of Washington back then, and my friends and I were movie nuts. Back then, we were blessed to live in the Seattle area where you couldn't swing a cat without hitting a movie theater. There were a lot of $2 Tuesdays and super cheap matinees, and one of the best movie houses was a classic remnant of the glory days of themed cinemas, the Neptune in the U District. A one-screen movie palace, it was decorated as an Art Deco homage to the Greek god Neptune, with statuary and an under-the-sea theme. Shell-shaped light fixtures, stained glass, the whole Megillah. It was a repertory theater with a different double feature every day. It was a $4-ish ticket if you bought a monthly pass, which I often did, and this is where I first saw one of my first weird indie films, Repo Man. A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this, like, lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. It was my first Harry Dean Stanton film, and definitely my first Emilio Estevez film. Estevez plays a young man taking a job at a car repossession company who's paired with a veteran repo man, Harry Dean Stanton. A bounty comes in for a Chevy Malibu, but $20,000 seems like a crazy big reward for an older car. A subplot about a team of feds also looking for the car involves alien corpses and a string of mysterious deaths. Then things get weird. Let's just say it's a good movie to watch with friends. There was another theater north of the U District, I can't remember the name because it was a long time ago, but I saw a handful of indie films there. Joe Morton was a fixture in a lot of indie films before he made it big in movies like Terminator 2. But before he played the ill-fated Skynet scientist, he was the brother from another planet. This is another weird, fun flick with a bit more character development and sophistication than Repo Man. It's a plum role for Morton, too, even though he doesn't have a single line. He plays an escaped slave alien on the lam from his evil overlords, and the plot follows his adventures trying to make his way in Harlem and the people he meets along the way. He's such a sympathetic character, you can't help cheering for him. Talking about it kind of makes me want to see it again, actually. The brother from another planet, yeah. For the next film, I think I saved the best for last. Buckaroo Banzai is one of those weird, wild, irreverent sci-fi films that has a pretty die-hard fan base to this very day. Insanely cool cast, wacky story, and production design that dares you to question it. What's not to like? Peter Weller is perfect as the dead, cool, titular hero, a Marty Stew on steroids, so multi-talented you just have to roll with it. 
Buckaroo, President's on line one, calling about is everything okay with the alien space club and Planet 10, or should he just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. Brain surgeon, rock star, superhero, no problem. John Lithgow as the crazy evil nemesis is delightful, and the supporting cast are also brilliant. Come on, Jeff Goldblum and Clancy Brown on the same super team? Yes, please. It's one throwaway line after another in a world that dares you to ask, why is that watermelon there? I wish there had been a sequel, as is promised in the end credits, but would it have been as good? Probably not. Lightning in a bottle, as they say. Thanks, Nancy. I guess the idea of avoiding to talk about Liquid Sky was, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. <laughs> I get it. Anyway, uh, War Games, one of my favorite all-time flicks. I've seen it many, many times. As well as being a great thriller, it's also a wonderful time capsule of what computer technology was like at the time. Um, Buckaroo Banzai. You know, when that movie came out, I ignored it. I didn't think it would be for me. I, I heard the music and saw the costumes and the, me being a metalhead and whatnot. I, I just didn't think it would appeal to me. But later on, I came to appreciate it and I've watched it quite a few times. It's, it's, it's actually a marvelous movie. And it was one I was definitely wrong about when it came out. So thanks, Nancy. Now, we can't really talk about Liquid Sky without talking about the music. Here's a sample. here and say that this style of music has no appeal to me whatsoever and it begins as soon as the film begins and I found it very off-putting. Zuckerman knew early on that he wanted it to be electronic. He said it should sound naive like circus music. He had a problem however. No electronic music composer could understand what he was looking for so eventually he composed much of it himself. It was all done on a Fairlight computer musical instrument, a digital synthesizer, sampler, and digital audio workstation that was introduced in 1979 by Fairlight. There's an odd song that Paula E. Shepard, as Adrian, sings at the beginning called Me and My Rhythm Box. My rhythm box is sweet. This tune, Zuckerman wrote himself, and it's performed more as an art piece than, well, a real song. And I also wondered about the colorful and outrageous clothes the actors were wearing in the film. Was this the actual style of clothing in 1980s New York? Well, according to Zuckerman, apparently not. The costumes were all an invention for the film. Another interesting fact is Zuckerman pointed out in one interview that Liquid Sky might have been the only independent film made in New York at the time where no drugs were used during its making. He said he could never have completed the movie if the crew or cast were doing drugs. But now it's time to find out what other people thought of the film. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film gets a 70% audience score, which is actually higher than I expected. 
It also gets a very high critic score, but I'm not concerned with the critics at this point. Joseph L. gave it four and a half stars out of five, and he wrote, No matter what you think of it, it's not a movie you can forget. Its sounds and images will be in your head forever. How many movies can claim that? How many can claim that, Joseph? Hmm, I wonder. But I'm really hoping it's not in my head forever. Christopher L. gave it five stars, and he wrote, An astonishingly ridiculous, campy, gloriously inventive, and goofy piece of work. It gets my highest rating sort of by default. I'm not sure that a film should get your highest rating by default, though I'm glad, Christopher, that you enjoyed the movie. But on the darker side, WKJ gave it only a half star, and this person wrote, We thought we were so cool. Hmm, WK, a bit of sarcasm, but could you explain just who we are? I just don't understand. Jared J. also gave it a half star and wrote, Possibly the worst film of any kind. Any kind there, Jared? Not just one kind or two kinds, but any kind? Ooh, that's pretty harsh. And one last review, Christopher S. gave it only one star, and he wrote, What the hell was that? I've never seen a movie quite like it. Half runaway model showcase, half music video, all terrible trippy sci-fi. It's like cyberpunk without the cyber. It's barely a movie. Though I'd sit through it again if I saw it in a packed theater with fans dressed for the occasion. It would be like the Rocky Horror Picture Show without the musical theater kids. I think, Christopher, if you're willing to go to a theater to see it again, I think you need to give it more than one star. I'm just saying. I could be wrong. So anyway, the film premiered at the Montreal World Film Festival in August of 1982. It won the first Jury Award. It also won the Sydney Film Festival's Audience Award, the Cartagena Film Festival's Special Jury Prize for Visual Impact, the Brussels International Film Festival's Special Prize of the Jury, and the Cinematia International Film Festival's Special Jury Prize. The film enjoyed a nearly four-year run at cinemas in New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C. According to an interview with Anne Carlyle in the July 1984 edition of Movie Goer magazine, the movie was the most successful independent film of 1983 and grossed $1.7 million at the box office in the film's first months of release. Not bad since its budget was a half million dollars. And according to the movie's official website, the picture spent 28 weeks on Variety's top-grossing film's box office chart and was the longest-running title on it for the year of 1983. Nowadays, it's referred to as a cult classic, often being compared to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Personally, I don't think there's a good comparison between this and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I thought just for fun, I would present what Roger Ebert said about this back in 1984. I mentioned the movie's weird plot about creatures from outer space who are addicted to sexual intercourse, but no matter how interesting that might sound, the plot of Liquid Sky is actually pretty boring after you first have it explained to you. Everybody seems to be a little stoned in this movie. They're kind of low-key, low-energy, sit around a lot. But a lot of people are going to this film, and I think they're taking it as a fashion show. That actress, Ann Carlyle, is on screen a lot with interesting hairstyles and weird clothing styles and new ways to paint your face, and I think there's a lot of documentary information in this movie for the well-dressed punk. So I give it 
thumbs up as a fashion show and thumbs down as a movie. So now it's time to answer the question that, well, no one probably really cares about. And that's what did I think of the film? Now, I'll be honest, right away, it's not my style of film. I mean, it was interesting and unique, but I don't think I'll ever watch it again. The music alone would drive me crazy. And I didn't find any reason to like any of the characters. Even our main one, Margaret, is just there. Maybe she needed her save the cat moment, I don't know, but I just didn't find her appealing. And you know, I never bought into Anne Carlyle as a man. When I first saw her character, Jimmy, on the screen, I thought it was a woman pretending to be a man as part of the story. Now there's a scene at the end of the movie in which Margaret performs oral sex on Jimmy. This, by the way, might have been the only time in film history where this action has been performed with both participants being played by the same actor. Anyway, I thought, during the scene, here it comes, the big reveal. She's going to find out that Jimmy was a woman all along. But no, Jimmy was supposed to be a man. On the plus side, this movie is different, and different is always good in my book. I mean, I was able to watch the whole thing without looking at my watch or wishing to turn it off. It did hold my interest. And I hope I don't sound arrogant, but that's not always the case with me. So, Jeff, on the count of wasting my time with an inferior film, the court finds you... innocent. I'm glad I watched it. It was an experience. And I'm also happy to say that I'll probably never watch it again. But thank you for recommending the film. I love the way you say Miranda. Say it again. Miranda. 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 You have the most beautiful knees. What does it feel like to have two legs? Oh, I find them quite useful. What would my sister say if they could see me now? Yes, and what would my wife say if she could see me? Is she as pretty as I am, Paul? Mm, she's quite attractive. Then why did you leave her? I haven't. I'm having a week's holiday, that's all. Oh, are you? But I'm going to keep you here. Unless... Unless what? You take me on land with you. On land? Well, a little bit before I go... I know there are many fans of this film, and if you're looking for more, I read that at least for the last five years, Slava Zuckerman has been working on a sequel, Liquid Sky 2, with Anne Carlyle returning in the role of Margaret. I read one interview that took place in 2017 where he mentioned it, and as far as I know, it still hasn't been done yet, so hopefully he's still working on it. Also, you might be interested that Anne Carlyle wrote a novelization of the movie in 1987 called Liquid Sky, the novel. People still do read books out there, right? In 1990, a film starring Dolph Lundgren called I Come in Peace was released. The film is the story of aliens who extract endorphins from the human brain by making them overdose with artificial heroin. Sounds a little familiar. Now for next week, we're going to do something a little different. 
You see, my schedule is based on four weeks a month, but this week we have an extra Monday. So I told Nancy Fry to pick out a flick, and she picked Miranda, the black and white British comedy film from 1948. I've never seen it, so we'll see how it goes. Now listen up, we have a Facebook page. You should be there and leave comments. Or go there and just say hi. Or go there and leave a film suggestion. The page is called Celluloid Days. Please join us. You can also do the same thing on Twitter. I'm at, at celluloid underscore days. Like I said, I'm always looking for suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Feel free to email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hello. And if you could leave me a review wherever you stream this, I'd be forever grateful. And, you know, it would be nice if it was a good review. I'd like to thank Nancy for her contribution and Jeff for recommending this film. And of course, thank you all for listening. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, and I'll be back next Monday with something different. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Multi-pass. Uh, multi-pass. You know it's multi-pass. Your stupid minds! Stupid! Stupid! The High Court may well sentence you to torture! Can you play the piano?